Hi, this is Huang Jinyu, along with my co-host Ken Wilcox, welcoming you, you to another episode of China 411. The topic for today's conversation is working with Chinese limited partners, and we have with us Mingye, who is the founding partner of CSC Upshot, an investor in early stage startups. Welcome, Ming. Thank you, Lee. Thank you, Ken. So tell us about your journey. Sure. How did you get here? Where are you from? Where I'm from, mm. yes. So I was born in a very small town called Jiayi in, uh, in Taiwan. And I came to the U.S. when I was 15. And as I mentioned to Ken before this, that when I came to the U.S., I spoke no English. Didn't your, English. your father just stick you and your younger brother on a plane and ship yes. you off? Yes. It was a hedge strategy, really. I came from a family of four kids. Yeah. And they had one son. And, um, that was your little brother. That was my little brother. Yeah. And the Taiwan-China relation was uncertain at the moment and continued to be today. So the question is, if you have four kids, you have one son, how do you hedge yourself in the family planning trajectory? So my parents decided that I was the middle one, and my brother happened to be the one that right younger than me. So the two of us were selected, got on the plane. We landed at JFK. And we went to Princeton. He, he was 13? He was 13. I was 15. Yeah. Got on the plane, went to JFK, and, um, and I went to Princeton High School. So, hold on just a minute. This was about your brother, not about you then, Exactly. Right? They, were, they were trying to ship the only son to a place they considered safer, maybe. Safer. Yeah. Safer. And you went to uh, Chaperone. I went to take care of him. To take care of him. Yes. The guardian. Oh. The guardian. Of the family. I'm the guardian angel cat. <laughs> Imagine that. Yeah, you're, you're, you're losing your credibility right at the beginning here. So, so did, how did that work with no English? It's tough. It was very, very tough. It was very tough. It was not easy. Um, so I spent three years in Princeton at attending high school there. Why Princeton? My, I had an uncle. My mom has a brother. My uncle lived close by, um, so there was some family close by, and so that was the place to be. What was this uncle doing in Princeton? My uncle had four Chinese restaurants. But so did you actually go to high school before you could, I mean, without English? Yes, yes. So I attended Princeton High School. Yeah, um, how'd that work, though, going to class and you couldn't understand? I couldn't understand. I couldn't understand anything. Mm -hmm. um, so I did not do very well in English, in history, in any kind of classes that actually require any levels of English. However, I understand the numbers very well. Mm -hmm. I see the numbers and I know it. I look at the book. I don't have to read the text. I see the number. I see the equation. I understand that. So, so you did well in math. I did very well in math. Mm. I did very well in physics, which then, which is what I decided to do. So then from Princeton, I went to Wellesley College. By then you could speak English. I learned how to speak English at Wellesley. Really? Yes. yes. Wow. I believe that I found my voice at Wellesley. I mean, I know a lot of women say that, yeah. that they found their voice at Wellesley. But this is literally. But this is literally. I found my voice. I learned how to communicate. I verbalized myself at Wellesley. And, um, and then after Wellesley, I worked as an engineer for about 10 years. Where? In Silicon Valley. Where? Uh, I started my engineering career at Prime Computer in Boston 
area. Remember Prime? I banked them. Yes. And then, um, and then Sorry, I moved I'm out too young here. to Yeah, you're too young. And then I moved out to the Valley. Yeah. And I worked for, in the beginning, IBM for maybe three months. Then I moved on and I worked for a couple of startups. I worked for one startup that was bought by, uh, by Fujitsu. So that worked out all right. Then I worked at Sun Microsystems and I was there for about four years. I designed um, their one of the mi microprocessors at yeah. Sun. I had patents. I had three patents. Wow. Didn't they go oh, down shortly after you were there? Or? Exactly. Yeah. That's what happens in life. Yeah. Again. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> no, so actually, when I left Sun to go to business school, Sun was doing extremely well. Hmm. That was when Sun um, started getting into the Java era. And um, my stock at Sun is what paid for my MBA education. So, so then you went I, to, MB, uh, to MIT for an MBA. Right, so I moved oh, back okay. to Boston. Mm. I went to get my MBA at MIT. And that was when um, they were building a, tr a trading floor at MIT, live trading floor connected to uh, Wall Street. Mm -hmm. And my friends would be watching the Sun stock. And then when they, I told them, when it hits $99, come get me out of class, no matter what, because I need my next semester tuition. Mm -hmm. So that's how I pay myself through nice. my two years of MBA. Very nice. And how did you progress into, I know you also invested in China before. Right. How, how did that all happen? And how did you decide to come back? And Right. Yeah, so after, after MBA, I became an investment banker. I spent a summer in Hong Kong. Because at that time, I was beginning to, to, to feel that I need to figure out a way to differentiate myself. What are the, the key things that I can bring to what I do and how am I different from other people? So I think the fact that I grew up in Taiwan, the fact that I speak the language, the fact that I understand the culture is very, very important. I always wanted to have that as a cornerstone piece of what I do. At the same time, by, by then, I have already lived 10 plus years in the US. I have become Americanized. I realized the opportunities in the US. So I've been always looking for a way to sort of merge the two and how do I create a platform that will allow me to best reinvent myself and then create an opportunity for myself. So out of MIT, I joined Lehman. After Lehman, I then started my very first venture firm and that's uh, Packard Venture Partners. Was that? I was with Tom Toy. Tom Toy and you. Exactly. So yeah. Packard was, uh, the, in many ways, the predecessor to CSC Upshot. Uh, so Packard was $25 million fund. We were anchored by Hong Kong Telecom out of Hong Kong. And the idea of Packard really was to say, at that time, it was in the late 90s, and US, was, US markets did very much on the up and up and up and up. The LPs or the corporations in Asia are looking for ways to get a window into the early stage technology in Silicon Valley. Remember, that's before the dot-com bubble actually burst. So there was a lot of interest from the corporate LP base in Asia with the ones that I spoke to. So Hong Kong Telecom for one, Anchor the Fund, leveraging Packard as a platform to then get the view of the technology companies here in the US with the expectation that these companies would then expand market presence into Asia. So that, that fund was investing in California, mostly. Yes, yes. Yeah. So Before you go ahead, what happened to the brother? My brother? Yeah. My brother is a cardiologist surgeon living in LA. 
Oh my gosh. Living the family dream. Yeah. Yes. You, su yes. you succeeded. You I got succeeded. Your brother <laughs> set up. He's, he's safe and sound. <laughs> That's good. He's nicely married. Yeah. He's got two boys. Yeah. Very nice. So I think the family legacy lives on. Oh, good. <laughs> and your two, the two older sisters, are they still in Taiwan? So I have an older sister and a younger sister. Remember, I was oh, a younger two. sister. Yeah. One, where, where are they? They're here now. Oh, they're here now. Yeah. They're oh, okay. both in the Palo Alto area. Oh, very nice. Very oh, okay. Nice. Yes. All right. So, so Pack Rim was uh, what was it called again? Pack. Pack Rim. Yeah. Venture Partners. Was it a success? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it was um, the timing was not perfect for any venture firm at the time because in two in early two thousand, then the dot com bubble burst. Mm -hmm. Um, a lot of the company we wrote the valuation down, but ultimately I think Packwin, in compared to its peer class, had mm -hmm. done well. Good. So then fast forward to 2008, um, I was sitting still in California and thinking about how do I best create an, a bigger platform for coming back to my passion, which is connecting U.S. with China and, and leveraging the platform, and the other piece into this also by now will be my venture experience and also my technology background. You know, to me, it was important that I have a way to integrate all these points. So, and one thing that was very, very obviously missing is I don't have any in-depth, in-market working experience in China. I was sitting in the U.S., kind of pointing to my life before 15, saying, hey, look, I was from Taiwan. I could speak the language, but I have no working professional experience in Asia. So I decided to pack up the family with my husband's consent, of course. And um, our daughter was two years old at the time. And we thought what a gift it would be for her to kind of grow up in China, to grow up with another culture and understand our language. Because I felt deeply that that kind of defined me who I am. So your husband, is he Chinese? He was, uh, he's kind of like Z. <laughs> no, you mean looking like no. me? Yeah, well, yeah. yeah, that's hard to find. Mm. Oh. Uh, my husband is, uh, well, he was born in the U.S. His, his family is Shanghainese, so he spoke Chinese and Shanghainese. And um, so we as a family decided to move to China. And we picked Shanghai just because Sherman speaks Shanghainese. So if anything happens, he could navigate himself back to the U.S. Got it, got it. So I, I, I am... I understand that you had a pleasure of working for Ken Wilcox. I, just off the record, how was that experience? It was great. <laughs> was off the record, <laughs> off the record. It was the best thing in my uh, life. Yeah. But, 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 but all serious, in all seriousness, like, what was your experience like investing in China? And what made you decide finally to come back and continue that process, but still back here? Yeah, so then I went to China and I joined Silicon Valley Bank. Um, it was a fantastic platform. On the record, off the record, Silicon Valley Bank was a fantastic platform um, because it touches so many companies at such early stage and it's able to create all the different solutions and to create a partnership with all these different companies. So I had the opportunity to kind of embed myself on that platform and then it's able to sit on that and look at the Chinese companies, as you said, um, the experience of investing in China. It was, in many ways, very, very different from my experience here in the U.S. I think... Give us a few examples. Right. The examples are, things. for example, transparency, communication, trust. Um, a lot of these things are taken for granted here in the U.S. 
when I look at a company here to invest, part of the diligence process is sit down with the founder and the CEO, kind of eye to eye, and kind of get to know each other. And in many ways, the trust is it's already um, assumed. I'm assuming that the CEO is presenting himself or herself truly. Um, but in China, I think that there's a little bit of lack of trust in that area where you still have to do a more digging in. You have to do a little more diligence behind all the things that's on paper. And then uh, communications and transparency. So in terms of everything that we then work with the company on, there's always another layer of friction, as I call it, uh, to try to get to know the company better, to try to figure out how, how to put our hands around it. And what made you come back? I was tired working for Ken. <laughs> now it's off the record. All right. Um, but now this fund you have now, CSC Upshot, yeah. it takes actually Chinese money, Yes. Chinese LPs. Yes. How did that come about? So um, the idea behind that is, is, um, is again, so coming, going back to what I said earlier, this whole platform about cross-border, and then the idea of going to China really was for me to, to have the in-market experience, and I felt six years in China um, in many ways was sufficient for me to sort of bring that experience back home here. And we decided to come back. I wanted to um, create, again, this capital flow platform between Asia and China. I was thinking about the best way to do this is through another venture firm. But I did not want to do yet another traditional venture firm. There's a lot of venture firms out there that, that does really good job. And there's, it's for me to, in essence, come in and compete with them for deal flow, um, it, it's probably going to be a long haul for me. So how do I do this differently, and how do I best leverage what I have? So when I was at MIT, um, one of my best friends is Kevin Laws, and he is now the COO and a very early, early employee at AngelList. Kevin and I stay friends throughout all these years. His daughter and my daughter, uh, um, well, they call themselves first friends rather than best friends. So um, Kevin with AngelList and me thinking about how do I um, help the capital sources in China to come into Silicon Valley to address it thoughtfully, but going into early stage and then figuring out how do I tap into the quality deal flow here. So the way we decided to do it is sort of to merge the concept to create a very close collaborative partnership with AngelList in the sense that our fund would source our deal primarily on AngelList. We would leverage the AngelList marketplace. We would leverage Kevin and Naval, founder of AngelList, you know, leverage their mindset, leverage their relationship, and work with them to create a venture fund. That's the concept behind CSC. So tell us a little bit about AngelList, because I don't think um, most of our listeners are uh, familiar necessarily. Just give us a sense of what AngelList is all sure. about. So yeah. AngelList, um, in, in the easiest way, is, is a marketplace for, uh, for startup companies to meet investors. That was the, they started out that way. It started out as a venture hack. So it started out as an as a, as a investor list that Naval keeps. And then companies who want to raise funding emails Naval, and then they get, they, Naval introduce them to investors. So that's the first phase of um, AngelList. By now, though, AngelList is, is a big, it's a marketplace for a lot of different startup companies. Companies can hire people on there. There's AngelList Talent, 
so they look for jobs on there, company could uh, create, it's almost like a LinkedIn for startups. Mm. So uh, startup company could then create a profile angelist, they can meet other startup companies. So they create a partnership like that. And then you then create other sort of vertical applications on top of the, the marketplace. I view our fund more or less as a vertical application on a horizontal platform. So we come in as a fund, we address a particular vertical need for this marketplace, uh, which is liquidity, uh, investment, helping company grow, that would be our application. So how do you go about selecting the ones on venture lists that you want to invest in? Because that list is, is probably pretty big. It's pretty big, all but, kinds of quality. but we, they, do, they do a very good job of uh, sourcing the deal quality. And, um, and then so we look at the, we, so it, it is very big. So the investment model is really, it's leveraging the online database, leveraging the online communities, and uh, look at everything at the scale level. But even within that, the deal quality, um, Angelus has a deal team, we have a deal team, we then, we vet the deals, we, we look at the deals, we, we sort of categorize them into certain sectors and certain signals, and that's how we comb through our deal that way. So the fund size, CSC then anchors the first fund with $100 million. I then added other LPs onto that, so Baidu is another one of my LPs. So Baidu, similar to CSC, Although with a different angle, CSE in a sense is a fund management company, um, so they look into expand fund management, ex look into just expand into deal flow here in the U.S. Baidu has a different view. Um, Baidu is a corporate company in China, and they're already here. They have a team of people here, and I think that what we bring to the table really is to help them leverage and give them a view into the very, very early stage companies. How do you make these Chinese LPs feel comfortable with very, very early stage investing? Because so many of them fail. Yes. And the return cycle is so long. We're yes. talking about five, in, seven years, if not longer. And yes. in China, don't most venture capital funds get involved a little later? Yes. Uh, not so much with the early stage. Yes. Exactly. Yes. So um, in some ways, it's, it's more about when you say comfortable, do you mean how, how I got them to agree to this ter the, the time? Or, yes, I mean, this speaks to your LPs, but in general, because there's so many Chinese investors looking to invest in the U.S. now. Yeah. How do you see them getting comfortable with, I mean, the enormous amount of risk involved in all this? Here? Yeah. Well, I think a lot of that is comfort level a lot of that is more it speak to the LP's long-term strategy um, I I think that this model is not gonna work for short-term focused LP's for sure so you feel like there's quite a few long-term focused definitely. Chinese LP's definitely and definitely. what's their perspective what so you, you mentioned Baidu wants to to see where technology is going right that's yeah, their in some approach. ways a tap into the what, early stage what about now. others Many others have similar desire. Similar um, desires. Okay. Many others do, and um, are you saying that this is more strategic than return oriented? No, I wouldn't say that. I wouldn't say that. Mm -hmm. I would say for sure, CSE is return oriented. It's a fund management company. Mm -hmm. They ultimately have their own LPs that they need to take care of, so everything needs to be driven from from financial return perspective. Um, I think that. But the strategic angle, it almost comes in in a much bigger, bigger level, and, and almost. So I don't want to move off the topic, but I think at the much bigger level, 
is all about the China dream, the Chinese dream. So right? tell us about the Chinese yeah, dream. Yeah, what is the Chinese dream? Yeah. How is that different and similar to the American dream? Yes. So I think the Chinese dream was coined by uh, Xi Jinping even before he took office. And, um, and it's really his way of giving the Chinese people the optimism, the pride, the national um, pride about China, Chinese being a strong economy and having the opportunities for every Chinese person to sort of become and become the global citizens, as, as you may say. So it gives Chinese people a lot of pride, a lot of energy, and then using that, it also drives a lot of uh, what's the underlying growth. You know, they drive innovation, it drives a lot of that. Chinese dream, in many ways, in my mind, this is my personal view, in my mind, is just like the American dream. I mean, I felt like I lived the American dream. Because I'm an immigrant, I came to the US when I was 15. There was nowhere else in this world, I think, that I could do what I do today, going through all that, unless I'm in the US. If I had, had I stayed in Taiwan, I don't think I would have been doing what I do today. Had I moved to China at 15, I don't think that opportunity would be there at that time. But I think that's exactly what Xi Jinping wants to create for any 15-year-old living in China to have this, this, this dream, to have this dream to say, I can be what I want to be, and the world is not going to stop me, and my country is going to help me take care of myself and do that. So I think that that translates to your question, um, what are the companies looking for when they deploy capital here? I think it's because they are feeling confident. They're feeling this, this optimism in the air. They're feeling this need to grow and this need to expand beyond their current scope. Okay? So there's a lot of long-term focus to that need and that strategy. And yeah, you know, a lot of people say China is long-term focus by very short-term execution. <laughs> it's true. It's true. So that's why you will see LPs and you will see people that comes here to the U.S. and say, you know, I can't do early stage investing because 10 years is just too long for me. Yep. But then if you sit back and say, well, what is your long-term strategy? And it obviously pans out 20 or 50 years. So you do have to find that group of people that's willing to, say, to play that long game yeah, yeah. to say, this is what I want to do. Because there's, I think, a perception in the U.S. right now that most of the Chinese investors coming in, they just want a quick return. They want to bring the technology and potentially take it yeah. to China. Yeah. I mean, do you find that different with your LPs? Do you f find that there's a different segment of LPs, or are they still very I similar? I do find that. Okay. I do agree. I, d I do think so. I do think so. I, I think that, um, I do think in general, people tend to think that uh, Chinese investors are more short-term focused. Um, and I don't necessarily disagree with all that, although I would actually want to point out that the trend is that they are getting more patient. The trend is that there is this more um, in need and want to really develop the technology, get into this, this innovation technology rather than just buying it, taking it to China. I think there's more this desire to create value here in the US and then the value that gets connected to China is connected to this value here in the U.S. and not necessary to take this and uproot it and move it to China. So having been an investor in China mm -hmm. in early stage companies, now doing the same in the U.S., so what does it take to be a great investor in both places? How are they different, similar? 
I, I think that to be a good investor, you, you have to listen well. That's you, true for both? That's true for both, okay. for everything. Okay. Yeah. I differences? Think, well, you listen and you, you know, you understand what is it that you need to do. To what are you listening for? Listening for to see what is it that the company actually need you to do. Okay. Um, do they actually want you to be actively involved? Do you do they actually want you to the, the founders at this early stage probably just want you to let them grow and they don't want to? So you, there's some you need to just let them. I mean, you listen to a lot of different things. Um, I talked earlier about going to China and then understanding that it's different communication-wise. You listen, you, you try to figure out what is it that they need and what is it that you could offer. And to the extent that you find a match, I think that's where the great, great investment comes. So earlier you were talking about the differences between working with uh, American entrepreneurs, mm -hmm. American startups, mm -hmm. and on the one hand, and on the other hand, Chinese entrepreneurs, Chinese startups on the other. What about the difference between uh, working with American LPs versus working with Chinese LPs? Or what do you think? Is there any difference? Uh, yeah, big differences. Um, what are some of them? I think the U.S. Um, U.S. institutionalized LPs, they again focus a lot more on transparency, communication. They uh, focus on um, the the stability of the fund. They focus on the, where the GPs come from. They focus on a lot of things. Those things are important as well for uh, for Chinese LPs. But I think, and also U.S. Um, LPs, in many ways, that do inherently takes the longer term view. Um, they do understand that it, it does take time. And um, so once they commit to your fund, they likely commit to the next fund and the next fund. So there's more that long term relationship side that, that's more stable. Um, I would say at this point, the Chinese LPs are still um, sort of figuring out their way. I think it's still learning. It's still in its I wouldn't call it infancy anymore. Maybe it's toddler. Maybe it's, it's my, my daughter, teenager years. I don't know. But, um, but I think that the Chinese LP community is still sort of finding itself, defining itself. And, um, and I think that that has a lot of goods and bads. That's a lot of opportunities, a, a lot of um, interest and desire to come and deploy capital into funds. Um, but of course, they, they will have certain ask that people here may say, well, why are they asking me for this? But again, this goes back to listening. Why are they asking you for this? They're asking for it because of certain things. So do you, if you want to work with them, if you want to work with them well, you've got to learn to listen to them and, and figure out a way to work. Sure. So you're sitting on two very exciting trends, right? One is AngelList, this mm -hmm. idea that you can democratize investing yeah. through this online open platform. And then the other is, you know, all this Chinese money coming in. What's your prediction for the future? So I, um, I would like to say what I would like. I think the, the future should be global. I think that there should be no, no borders. Uh, we talk, you know, innovation should not have any border to it. I, that, that's kind of my John Lennon thing, you know. It should be like no <laughs> borders. Sing it out, sing it out. But 
I am not opti optimistic. Had you asked me this question maybe a year ago, I would say, yeah, that's the way the future is going to go. No borders, the globalization of all economy, globalization of citizens. But I think I am not as optimistic that we would get there soon. I think that it may take us longer if we get there. What changed your mind? The current, current administration <laughs> that we live under mm -hmm. and, um, and also uncertainties in China as to which way the government's going to go. I am actually seeing a lot more silo focus now. I am seeing because of the RMB cannot come out, so there's a lot more for RMB to stay in China. That's in both countries. In both countries. So US mm -hmm. and US dollars stays in US, uh, RMB stays in, in China. So uh, the valuations in China is getting frosty because there's just no other way for the money to come out. So it's creating this, in my, in my view, an artificial market to hold the money, the capital in there. U.S. as well. I mean, I think we're creating um, borders. We're creating um, wars. <laughs> and, uh, and that's not in, in conducive or inducive to any kind of global exchange. So I would say that um, I'm a little more pessimistic as to when this eventual uh, global platform is going to happen. But I think it should happen, and I'm hopeful that it would happen. Great. Well, thank you so much, Ming, sure. for thank a you. wonderful conversation. And this wraps up another episode of China 411. See you in the future.